Praise the Lord for all that God is doing in the life of our church. We do want to keep those who have lost loved ones, um, those who are sick and shut in, those of us just going through in prayer. Um, my pastor in Chicago would always say, uh, let's, let's remember those who are going through because you never know when it's going to be you. And so we need one another. Somebody say we need one another. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we kicked off a series in First Thessalonians and, and today is part 2. And I'm excited to get after what God has for us this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 will be our spiritual entree, if you will, um, as God has something to say to us, right? God, God wrote a book and he has something to say. Anybody need a word from heaven today? Well, honor we pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how you are just so good to us in spite of us. We all, we all have used up our second chance a long time ago. But you're a God of another chance. And the proof of that is you woke us up this morning. You started us on our way. But, Lord, we do want to pause and pray for those who have lost loved ones. There's been many funerals that's already taken place in this church. Those coming up. Amen to what our sister read in Corinthians about God being a God of comfort. Oh, God, be a comforting presence to the dear families. Comfort this church. Comfort us as well. As we seek to navigate through highs and lows, grief, the heaviness. But Lord, even in the midst of this, we pray that you would send a word from heaven. These, your dear people, do not need to hear anything that I have to say. They need to hear from your word. We need a word from heaven today because that's the only thing that will change our lives. Your word changes lives. So, Father, we pray that as we sit up under this beautiful text, pray, Lord, that you would confront us, that you would challenge us to change for the very cause of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to speak on the title, Gospel Flavor gospel flavor. Several years ago, I was living in Chicago. Beautiful city, but I do not miss those winters. In the name of the Lord, I don't miss those winters. I don't miss them at all. Well, my wife and I were invited out to eat, and this person said to me with utter confidence, Pastor, I want to take you to the best fried chicken in town. Now, I was a bit offended because here this Midwesterner is talking to a southern boy. We invented fried chicken. Let's argue. I'm thinking to myself, that's a bold statement for you to say, that this is the best fried chicken in town. This is the best fried chicken you'll ever have. And so we get to this restaurant. It was a beautiful place, a beautiful ambiance. And there we are. My wife and I were sitting there at the table. We look at the beautiful menu. We order our fried chicken along with the sides. The food comes out. Our friend is there smiling, teasing, because he's thinking, oh, they about to be blessed in the name of the Lord. He blesses the food. I pick up the piece of fried chicken. I took a bite to the fried chicken. And lo and behold, the, this piece of fried chicken tasted like a box of rubber and grease. 
My mama didn't raise no fool because he was paying the bill anyways. So I had to put on a mask and act like I enjoyed it. But the chicken had no flavor. So in that moment, I, ha I had to ask for the salt and pepper, please. Can I get some Louisiana hot sauce ministry, please? I got to dock this thing up. I'm looking to my wife, and I'm kicking her under the table like, mm, just pull on the mask right now. Act like you're enjoying it. We got to finish this meal because the brother is paying the bill. It was the worst fried chicken in my life. Now, now let me just, go, this ain't in my nose. Let me get this out to you for free. Real fried chicken is seasoning that goes all the way down to the bone. I'm preaching to somebody. Bless the name of God. Seasoning to the bone. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But this chicken had no flavor. It tastes like a box of rubber in Greece, nobody up in here, I think it's a safe assumption, nobody up in here wants any kind of bland food. Every last one of us likes to enjoy nice cuisine, nice flavor. God is a God of flavor. I'm not talking about food now. We're talking about the one who spoke and the worlds were formed. He spoke ex nihilo, that's out of nothing, which means that we don't even know what nothing looks like. And God's word is so powerful that he said, let there be, and there it was. And when God created the heavens and the earth, he called it good. Ah, the Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You and I have not lived our lives until we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Is there anybody in here that has tasted and seen that God is mm, mm good? Oh, that was all 10 of you. Is there anybody here today that can testify that God is good? talking about a God of flavor. We're talking about a God of flavor. Let's, let me work this. Let me work this. The, the, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole Bible, it, the whole, the whole storyline. Old Testament points to Christ. New Testament is, is a coming of Christ and we're living in light of Christ for the return of Christ. This gospel, this good news, those who receive this good news, receive the fact that Jesus came and died, receive him, and they genuinely walk with him, their lives, our lives will be filled with the aroma of heaven. Our lives will be filled with gospel flavor. And if there's anybody in Scripture that can relate to having some Holy Ghost seasoning, it will be the Apostle Paul. Paul in and of himself didn't have any swag well, I mean, swag is nothing compared, you know, compared to God. Swag is nothing more than external arrogance. Paul didn't have any swag, but he had Jesus. And his life was lived with Holy Ghost seasoning. You see it as you read his letters. You see it in the book of Acts as he lived his life. You see it in his passion for the cross. He had gospel flavor. So when we come to 1 Thessalonians, which really is, is all about living faithfully and authentically the Christian life. Paul opens up in chapter 1 and he talks about 
how the church is there, their faith is real. Their faith is authentic. It's the power of God. It's the transformation of lives. But now we come to chapter 2. Paul now is beginning his defense of his ministry because there were some folk up in that church that had some problems. They, 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 They wanted to challenge Paul's ministry. And so Paul is now defending himself in chapter 2. He's defending his ministry. And if you'd like to take notes this morning, let me give you the big idea. Let me give you the big idea over these uh, 12 verses in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Here's what the text is teaching us, and then I'm going to walk us through this. What Paul is teaching us through his example is this. Authentic faith is anchored in a great God. Authentic faith. That is, a faith that has gospel flavor is anchored in a great God. Now, here's the question the text is raising. What what does an authentic faith that has gospel flavor look like? What are the ingredients? What are the elements of a faith that has gospel flavor? You ask great questions on a Sunday morning. There are at least three answers to that question. There's a lot more, but for the sake of the text, there's at least three answers to that question. What are the ingredients of a gospel-flavored life, a life that is authentically lived before him? The first ingredient is this, authentic boldness. Authentic boldness. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, here we go, that our coming to you was not in vain. He's addressing people that said it was pointless for you coming here. He says, no, no, I want you to know that our coming to you was not a failure. Our coming to you wasn't pointless. We, we, we didn't come to you watering down the message of the cross. We didn't come to you clouding the cross. The proof of our sincerity is in the transformation of lives. By the way, throwing this out there for free. Listen to me. The end game of all church ministry is transformation. The end game of the Christian life is transformation. The end game of all that we do is the transformation of lives. That we ought to look like better worshipers when we leave than when we came in. Paul says, are coming to you was not in vain. Look at the proof of this in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, stop right there. If you want to read this on your own, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were treated horribly, shamefully. Uh, Quick summary, they exercised a demon from a slave girl. This didn't sit well with the people, so they were dragged to face local authorities. They were falsely accused. They were flogged naked in public. They were thrown in prison. And Paul says to the church, you know this. You you know about our persecution. You you know about our suffering. It's almost, almost like he's saying, how dare you say our coming to you was in vain. And in the midst of this, this, this suffering, in the midst of this brutality that he experienced, he goes on to say in verse 2, we had boldness, there's a word, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God 
in the midst of much conflict. What does boldness mean? It simply means to have courage, to be fearless. Now, I love this. It does not mean to be obnoxious and to be a jerk. Run away from Bible-thumping people to try to beat your way into heaven. That's not boldness. That is sinful, and that's being a jerk. Boldness is simply courage with grace and truth, with the tone of it being love, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus before Jesus and before others. That's why he says we had, I love this, boldness, not in ourselves, but in our God. Hallelujah. To declare to you the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? That we are sinners. That there's nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves, in and of ourselves. So Jesus came on a rescue mission. God becoming man. He dwelt among us, lived the perfect life. John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He went to the old rugged cross. He was beaten. He was battered. He was bruised. He took on the wrath of God in our place. He gave up the ghost. He died and he was buried. He rose again from the, on the third day. And those who place their faith in the finished work of Christ will be saved. He says... We came to declare to you the gospel of God. Now watch this. He's not doing this within the context of comfort and convenience. He's doing this within the context of much conflict. You see that in the text? In the midst of much conflict. We preach Jesus in the midst of a fight. I love what one scholar says. Look at it with me. Timid preaching does nothing but leave poor souls fast asleep. While bold preaching, if delivered under an affectionate love to the souls of men and with a humble desire to promote the glory of God, is the only preaching that is owned and blessed of him. And we're talking about this ingredient of authentic boldness. What does that actually look like, practically speaking? Well, let me come to your neighborhood and give you three pieces of mail. Authentic boldness has at least these three things. Number one, authentic boldness is conviction. Conviction. That you believe deep down in your heart in the transformative power of the gospel. This isn't just words on a page. This is the truism of life, the reality of life, the truth from heaven, that I know that Jesus is real, that I know the Spirit of God right now is moving in hearts right now, that I know that God is peering into the hearts of men even now. It's conviction. It's not you living off of somebody else's faith, it's you living it for yourself because you've seen God move in your life. A person who's authentically bold for Christ is a person who has biblical conviction. The second ingredient of an authentic boldness is that it's urgent. Show me a person who's biblically bold and I'll show you a person who's urgent. Urgent about their life, urgent about people's lives, urgent about the reality of eternity. It is a sobering reminder that right now we are a step closer to an appointment with God than when service first started. 
we own not even the very breath we're breathing. There's an urgency brewing in my soul. There's conviction brewing in my heart. But authentic boldness, number three, is warfare. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the very power of God to those who are being saved. Now you hear me, you hear me, you hear me. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to this world. The reason why the world and so many religions have a problem with Jesus is because Jesus demands allegiance and worship. There is only one way to heaven. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when we're bold for Christ, please understand we are engaged in spiritual warfare. That there's a forces of darkness that does not want to see anybody seeing the beauty of Christ. And even right now, I'm pressing against that in the name of Jesus. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So here's the challenge as we think about this, church. We have to decide in being biblical than being liked. Did you hear what I said? We have to decide in being biblical than being politically correct. We have to decide in being biblical. Joshua would say it this way, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you and I want gospel flavor, then we have to have authentic boldness. And this authentic boldness is anchored in biblical truth. And it's not concerned about how somebody feels. It's concerned about pleasing him. First ingredient is authentic boldness. I love this. The second ingredient is an authentic heart. Let this bless you. Paul now is getting into some of the allegations in the text. You'll see it in verse 3. Notice here he's addressing some of the issues. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or in any attempt to deceive. So get this. There was at least three allegations just in this verse. There are people in the church, this is amazing to me, they, they, they challenged, number one, his message, that it was an error. Really? Paul says, really? I'm offended that you would say that. Back to chapter one, God did it. God worked. The Holy Spirit moved. And you're telling me that our message was an error? They challenge his message. They challenge his motivation. That it was impure. One version says impure motives. Now, this is interesting. Yeah, I don't want to get too, too, too often abundant on this. But if you do a Greek word study on this, the, the, the subtle implications of this Greek word lends itself to uh, sexual immorality. It's almost as if the people were saying, Paul, you in it for something for yourself. You, 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 you're in it. So you can gain some kind of pleasure from this. Because there were folk in that church, in that time, and may I even dare say in our culture today, you got some of these preachers out here preaching Jesus but living foul behind closed doors. Paul says, hold on now. We did not have impure motives. And you'll see this as we get through this passage. 
They challenge his message. They challenge his motivation. But they challenge his method that it was misleading. You see that phrase, or any attempt to deceive. Uh, or, or, you know, they, we weren't trying to trick you, Paul says. This isn't some uh, Chris Angel mind freak ministry. This isn't no David Blaine this isn't some kind of gig down on the strip where we're doing magic tricks in the name of Jesus. Now we were sincere. We were true. Tony Evans makes this observation in this verse. He says that when your preaching makes people want to stone you, beat you, and throw you in prison, it quickly becomes obvious that you are not a clever salesman trying to tickle people's ears. Paul says, that's not us. But old church, learn to sit into the word of God. Watch this. Paul says, that's not us. But let me tell you what is us. Let me tell you where my confidence is. The first thing Paul says, he says that we are approved. Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God. Past tense, it means to be accepted. I love this. Paul did nothing to win God's approval. By the way, none of us can do enough things to win God's approval. It was the goodness of God that chased him down while he was on, on the road of Damascus on his way to kill more Christians that intercepted his life and set him on a new trajectory for the glory of God. And so it is with you if you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Oh, you was going one direction, but oh, the hound of heaven came down and snatched you from darkness and placed you into his light. And Paul says, we have been approved by God. It was God's goodness and love that saved me. It wasn't my education. It wasn't my schooling. It wasn't my abilities. God approved of me because of his own goodness and his grace. He says we are approved, but he also says we have been entrusted. He says, but just as we have been approved by God, here it is, to be entrusted with the gospel. Now watch this, church. This is very important here. This is the imagery of a sacred stewardship. This is holy. Paul says that if we name the name of Jesus, we join in the chorus of Paul even here, that God in Christ has given us the precious gospel of Jesus, yes, to transform us, but to also give it away and share it with others. We have a stewardship issue. This is just not the job of a preacher. This is the job of every Jesus follower to steward well the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give people what they need and what people need the most is the hope of glory of Christ. And Paul says we have been entrusted. What a holy, holy calling. We're approved, we've been entrusted, but he also says we seek to please God. Look at the latter part of verse 4. He says, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Bottom line, Paul says, my ultimate audience, Thessalonica, Bible fellowship, it ain't you. It's God 
And guess what? Our ultimate audience is not the people that we minister to. We need to love them, yes, but our ultimate audience is Christ. It's the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so Paul circles back on some of these allegations, verse 5 and 6. He says, for we never came with words of flattery. In other words, we're not trying to tickle your ears, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. We're not in it for something else. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I mean, yeah, yeah, we could have used our power. But what good is that? What good is that? What good is that? We don't want the glory. Be very, 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 very careful in being around people who are thirsty for the spotlight. Thirsty for a platform. The last time somebody in heaven thought they was too sexy for their shirt, God kicked them out. Hello, Satan. God gives his glory to no one. He is concerned with the fame of his name in your life and my life. And we all struggle with pride at some degree. And God will spend our lives chiseling away at the pride in our hearts. Because he wants us to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God wants the glory. He wants the glory. My father, who's a preacher, he, he would often say this, and I've heard him say this in, in, in sermons and even say it to me and my siblings. He would say, don't give the devil a stick to hit you upside the head with. Don't give the devil a stick. To hit you upside the head. Now, the truth of the matter is, I mean, if we're living for Christ, we're going to be attacked. That's a given. But, but, but let's not give him a stick, i.e., let's not live our lives in sin. Now, we, can, we struggle, yes, but there's a difference between struggling and living in sin. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. The greatest testimony and protection we have is living a life of godly integrity. Let me say it again. The greatest protection and testimony we have is living a life of godly integrity. Let me work on that. A life that tells the truth about Jesus when no one's looking. A life that tells the truth about Jesus when everybody's looking. A life that tells the truth about Jesus when I'm in that hotel room. A life that tells the truth about Jesus in my marriage, in my dating relationships, in that boardroom, in that classroom, that my life tells the truth about Jesus. Some of us want Jesus to bless us, but he doesn't have our heart in the secret place. God can't trust us with more because we're not living for him when nobody's looking. Integrity is what God is after. That, that's what gives credibility to the gospel message. And I'm terribly concerned today that the world is looking at the church and laughing at us because we don't look like our picture. 
There's no Holy Ghost consistency with our lives. And therefore, people don't want anything to do with church because they don't see the Holy Ghost moving in your life and in my life. But oh, if we're going to be a people of gospel flavor, we have to have an authentic heart. And that authentic heart is cultivated in the secret place. I love Proverbs chapter 2 verse 7. It says, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Do we want God to bless our lives? Then tell the truth about the cross in every area of our lives. So what does an authentic faith with gospel flavor look like? There's authentic boldness, there's an authentic heart. And thirdly and finally, there's authentic love. Authentic love. Paul says three main thoughts here about love. He says, number one, that our love is pure. Look at verse seven, he says, I love this. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Ah, I better get some amens on this one. There is nothing like a mama's love. All six of you, let's try it again. There is nothing like a mother's love. Mother's love. A mother's love will go, go the distance. A mother's love nourishes her baby, sacrifices for her baby. Do whatever she has to do for her baby. There's many times my mother, if I don't call her as a grown man, if I don't call her, she'll, she'll contact me and she'll say something like, boy, what's wrong with you? I ain't heard from you. You okay? I'm just taking on my baby. I'm a grown man, but I'm still her baby. There's nothing like a mother's love. Now, with that image of a mother's love, I love this. Notice what Paul does in the text. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately, affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. But you have become very dear to us. Paul says, listen, like a mother is with her infant. We not only preached to you, but we cared for you. We walked with you. And I can, I can confidently say this as a pastor. And our deacons and so many in here have been walking with people through some stuff these past couple weeks. Amen for sermons and messages, praise God. But I tell you, I tell you, it's something about being in the trenches with people that God uses to fuse the hearts together. There's something about standing there and not, not, not having all the words to say, but simply putting your arm around that person and shedding tears with them as they lost a loved one. It's something about the gospel clothing itself in the Holy Ghost power just by being in the ministry of presence. Paul says, yeah, we preached to you, but we were with you. We cared for you. We walked with you. I love what this one preacher said. He said, the best way to win others to Christ is not to wave the rod of authority over their heads. 
but to be gentle and kind. Paul says our love is pure. But he also says our love labored. Notice this, this beautiful reality of love here, labor. And look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You study Paul's life. He was a tent maker. He, he, the churches, they, they couldn't afford. Uh, he could have used his power, but he didn't. He, he decided to be a tent maker to take care of his material needs. He didn't want to be a burden to the people. But Paul is also strategic. He, he also worked not only to take care of himself and not to be a burden, but he also integrated himself in the in amongst the people, the Jews and the Gentiles, because he wanted to make much of Christ. Which is why you see the echo of his heart in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. You see his character here? You see his integrity here? He says we were holy. We had an inner conviction to honor God. We were righteous. Not only had inner conviction, we wanted to align ourselves and make sure that our actions was telling the truth about the gospel we're preaching. But then he says we're blameless. He's not speaking of perfection here. He's speaking of a consistency of godliness. Our love labored. Our love labored. But not only that, he says, I love challenged. Now he goes from using the imagery of a mother to now of a father. Look at, look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children. Stop there for a second. A mother nourishes. A mother has compassion. Yeah, does a father do that? Yeah. But in this text, the primary role of a father in this passage, the analogy he's using, is speaking of, of direction, vision, leadership. Calling you to the carpet, calling you out, calling you forth, challenging you. And you see that in verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, here it is, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. New Testament is a metaphor for walk. It's a picture of conducting myself, living my life in a way that honors God. He says, I'm calling you to the carpet. Yes, we're affectionate towards you. Yes, we nurture you like a mother, but we also are not going to leave you there. We're calling you to a higher standard, to walk in a manner worthy of God. And if you and I want to make gospel progress in our lives, hear me, we have to walk in a way that pleases him. That's the only way to make gospel progress. That's the only way to advance the cause of Christ. Listen to me. The most important thing at the end of the day is our walk with God, period. Our walk with God must be everything. Because life is hard. Life has its curveballs. But when I'm connected to the vine, as Jesus would say, as I'm abiding in the vine then my life will have gospel flavor. See, Paul's love, it's challenging the people. He says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You are called. You are called. Purpose is written over you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You know what's funny? In every city, 
Every city. Every city. You can always tell the tourists from those who, are, who live there. You can always tell. It's hilarious to me. If I go out of town somewhere and I'm flying back to Vegas, you can always tell on the airplane who actually live in Vegas and those who want to turn up. But, you know, tourists, nothing wrong with being a tourist. I mean, we, we've all have been there. You know, you go on vacation. You're going to your excursions. You know, trying out new foods. And you're doing things that relax you. You're taking your pictures. You're, you're doing whatever. You're getting some R&R. Praise God for that. But, but tourists, they, they, they just stick out. Just stick out. I remember living in Chicago, and I, when I moved there in August of 1999, my, my parents, my mom's from Philly, my dad's from Jersey. They're, they're city folk, but I'm a Georgia boy, so I'm wet behind the ears. So when we moved to Chicago, I went to Moody Bible Institute. Those who don't know, Moody is right down, smack down in the middle of downtown Chicago. You are in the city a few blocks away from Cabrini-Green. If you don't know all about Cabrini-Green, just look it up on Google. You'll see what I mean. And my dad had to educate me. And what he said in so many words was this, don't you look like no tourist. What you mean, dad? You're going to stick out like a sore thumb, son. So as you're going to the train station, as you're going to the bus, as you're walking around the city, you need to act like you belong. You need to act like you're going somewhere. Because if you don't, you're going to be very vulnerable and you're going to be an easy target in getting robbed. So act like you're going somewhere. A lot of Christians live the Christian life like a tourist. Ooh, nice trendy movement here. Ooh, latest fad. Ooh, let's jump on the bandwagon here. Ooh, this is nice. Oh, let's try this over here. This is nice, but there's no sustaining power. There's no transformation. You go home and you're still the same person. God did not call any of us to be Christian tourists. He's called us to be kingdom citizens. We need to live our lives in a way that says, I belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. This earth is not my home. I'm only here temporarily. I'm passing through, and I need to make much of Jesus Christ with authentic gospel flavor. So we need to act like we're going somewhere. Because we are going somewhere. We're on our way to the presence of Jesus. No more pain, no more suffering. And though we, though we suffer in this world, we have, Peter would call it, a living hope. That's Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so just like we like food with seasoning. God wants us to have gospel seasoning. God wants us to have flavor. The question is, do we want gospel flavor? Do we want to be bold? Do we want to have an authentic heart where we can agree with Paul that, no, I'm, what I'm doing is coming from a good place? Do we want to have an authentic love? Here it is, church. Marinate 
in Jesus. We get too complicated sometimes in church. Marinate in Jesus. What does that look like, preacher? I'm glad you asked. Open up this book. Read a verse or two. Read a paragraph. Read a chapter. Make it a commitment to agree with the psalmist that says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Be in agreement with Ezekiel who says, I ate it and it tastes like honey. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Marinate in Jesus. If we want to have gospel flavor, marinate. Some of us here today, you, you, you know, you, you want to step up evangelistically, sharing your faith, and that comes through marinating with Jesus. The Holy Spirit, he'll give you what to say. Some of us, let's call it for what it is. Many of us are living defeated lives in the secret place. And you fill in whatever that secret is. Let me just drop a bombshell on us. God sees it all. We can't hide from him. Be sure our sins will find us out, the scripture says. So I might as well have an authentic heart and come before him. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So there's cleansing available to us today. What about love? What about love? What about love? Well, marinating Jesus because the greatest act of love was for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave us his very best and that's his son Jesus. The greatest act of love was the cross of Christ. Marinate in Jesus. I cannot stress that enough. He is our solution. Listen to me. There is no plan B. Did you hear what I said? There is no plan B. Jesus is plan A. And that's it. So marinate in Jesus. Authentic faith is anchored in a great God. There's boldness. There's authenticity in the heart. There's love. But we must decide today to marinate in Jesus. So we're going to have some friends up front, deacons, pastors, ministry leaders, who, who will pray with you. If, it, if it's you that doesn't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you, you got questions about where you would spend eternity, then you can come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You did not come here by accident. You came here by divine appointment. The first step is come to Jesus. Maybe you already are a believer and there's just been some issues and challenges, which we all have. Nobody in here is issue free. We have some friends up here to pray with you as well, whatever that is. Or if you just decide to stay where you are, my only, my only, my only ask is res please respond. Please respond to the Savior. Please respond. 
So I'm going to ask us to stand if you're, if you're able to, if you're able to. And after I pray, you may respond. Holy Father, you are here. You promise to be present with your people. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. Your, your spirit is here. Your, your word has gone forth. The worship has gone forth. And hearts and lives are being stirred not because of the preacher, it's all because of Jesus. I pray that we will not pray Russian roulette with our lives, but that we make a decision for the cause of Christ today. To live with conviction, to live with urgency, to embrace the war that we are in, spiritual battle, that we will stand firm in this evil day. Even now, Lord, I pray even now that there's prayers that go forth across this room. Whether it's coming forward, whether it's staying right where they are, whatever it is, I pray that we will pray and bombard the throne of heaven because you tell us to come unto me, to cast our cares on you. Oh God, make us, make us, make us, make us, make us an authentic people that has gospel flavor. And we know, Lord, that's a dangerous prayer because you use life to put holy fertilizer on our souls to fashion us more into Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask you, oh God, to be glorified in our lives. And may our lives testify that we have tasted and seen that the Lord with us as we respond in Jesus' name.